This evening, we are recording a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, the subject being power and panoply, or Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 24. It is our custom in these meetings to read a portion of Scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this recording may like to share. If so, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us Daniel chapter 10. Before turning to Ephesians chapter 6, you might notice in Daniel the 10th chapter and the first verse that there's an alternative translation. <coughs> Instead of reading the time appointed was long, it reads, the warfare was great. Now I won't go into the reason for that, take us too long. Warfare great. And it was so disturbing that you see the effect upon this man. And then you will realize the reason why he needed to be strengthened. Because this could be no ordinary prince of Persia. No ordinary man could withstand the messenger from God for 21 days until Michael, the archangel, came to his rescue. So we read this this evening just to draw the curtain and say, you see what principalities and powers are like? And this man couldn't even speak until he was strengthened. So we're going to have this evening in Ephesians power and panoply because there are principalities and powers to be met. So shall we now turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and consider the teaching of verses 10 down to, well, I don't know how far we're going to get. We'll have to wait and see. Our subject has been for one or two of these sessions, the balancing truth of Ephesians 4, 5 and 6. And if you will go back to chapter 1, you will notice there is an accumulation of power toward the closing verses. Verse 19. It's a part of the prayer that you should get to know it. When you get to chapter 6, you're conscious of the reason why you should get to know it. But if any one of us contemplates entering into warfare with such principalities and powers as struck Daniel dumb, I think we need to know where our power lies. So here's a chance, back in chapter 1. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who all who believe? So that's one word. According to the working. That's another word, which means energy. Of his mighty power, that's a third word. So we got packed in this one verse. Three aspects of power that's at our disposal by grace. Now chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong. That's one word. In the Lord. And in the power, that's the second word. Of his might, that's the third word. We're picking up where we left off. We have a mighty power. Because Christ is the risen one. And it's addressed to us who believe. Now, first of all, the Apostle says, finally. And it may not necessarily mean that he's ending up his argument, because you do know that at least in Philippians he says, finally, and then he says, finally, the second time. Well, there's some of us like that, I know, occasionally. But the word can be translated, as for the rest. So far, we've gone. Now, as for the rest, I want you to remember that you must know this mighty power. You must be able to don this panoply. You know, the Greek word panoplos gives us the word panoply, which means the whole armour. The, the whole armour of God. Because, although you're blessed with all spiritual blessings, you mustn't forget that spiritual blessings will attract, so far as this life is concerned, spiritual foes. It's a part of the teaching of Old Testament scripture that where your blessings are, you'll find your enemies. And that's going to come out presently, I hope. Now the first thing that I think we must do is to glitch down this chapter a little bit and look at the closing words of verse 13. We'll come back again on our story, but this is rather important. Verse 13 says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Having done all. 
The margin says, having overcome all. Well, that's another point of view. But you might say, well, which is it now? Having accomplished all that we ought to have done? Or having overcome all the foes that we were opposed, or what? Now, here is where the value of a structure comes in. Providing, of course, it is not your own little idea, providing you've merely uncovered what the scripture already contains. Well, I believe without boasting we can say that we have uncovered the actual structure which is in the book, not something we've foisted upon it. And chapter 119 is in structural balance with chapter 6, verse 13. And in chapter 119, 20, we have a power which is worked in Verse 20, which he wrought in Christ. Now that is en, ergio. En, in. Ergio to work. Some power is worked in. Well now, in all the realm of nature, in all the realm of everyday life, it's impossible to have power continually worked in unless it's also worked out. I don't know what would happen if you were pumping power always into a plant, and it never spun a wheel, it never did anything, I suppose there'd come a moment when it would explode or something. Well, we have, friends, power at our disposal. Power that's beyond dreams. That's in the doctrinal section. The practical section says, what are you doing with it? Are you using it? Have you forgotten to switch on? You know, there are folks that we read about, and I should be one of them, I'm sure. They couldn't make their car go. Oh, there's something going wrong with it. And then the mechanic comes up with his crane and his hook and all these apparatus and jacks and whatnot, but he just goes, that's all you need. You've forgotten to switch on. And I met some of God's people. You think they want the whole apparatus to save them, and all they want to do is switch on. They've never linked on with the power at their disposal. Well, the practical side of this truth is, work out. Now, I want you to notice this particular word. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, 17, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, we have these words. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It works out something. Now this word is katagazomai. Katagazomai. You may not see any connection at first with energia, but ERG is in the middle of both these words, and the rest of it is explanatory. Now katagazomai means to work out, and energia means to work in. And there's the two words in Ephesians 1 and 6. Ephesians 1 says the power is worked in, and Ephesians 6 says the power should be worked out. Now would you turn to Philippians, chapter 2. Here you have these two words brought together. And of course being brought together, well the translators have no difficulty in translating one work out and the other work in. But when they were so far apart as chapter 1 and chapter 6, they didn't seem to any connection, so they say, having done all, having overcome all, whereas, strictly speaking, having worked out all. See, the person who's going to overcome in the evil day is not the person who keeps on saying, you know, I'm blessed with all spiritual blessings, and I'm potentially seated where Christ sits at the right hand of God, and at the end of it, no, he's the person who's had some experimental proof that it's true. He's put on the armour of God, not talked about it. So, Will you look now at Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out, there's your one word, your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Work out, as God works in so that we can dispose of the translation of the authorised version in the verse and in the margin, and we can put it back as it should be, that here we are looked upon as having worked out the power that God has put at our disposal. Finally, my brethren, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And using it, be able to stand. Well, now shall we look at this question of the whole armour. I suppose you do know that there are some, and we must respect their zeal. They have a lot of youngsters, and they hardly got to know A from B with regard to scriptures, that they're exhorting them to become Christian soldiers and fight the devil and I don't know what. Well, that's very contrary to the teaching of scripture. In the Old Testament, I'll read the passage, Deuteronomy chapter 20, you have the law with regard to service that obtained when Israel were a people before God. This is what he says with regard to them. Deuteronomy 20 verse 5. The officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house, and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. But what man is he that hath planted a vineyard, and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. But what man is there that hath betrothed a wife, and have not taken her. Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And then on top of that, and the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. And so it goes on, and we discover that a man was twenty years old and upward when he was called upon to bear arms. It isn't right to tell young believers who are only at the beginning of their Christian experience that they've got to go out and fight the devil and all his host. However much they might like to think about Jack the Giant Killer or David and Goliath, that's all very well. But some of these children, and I've included among them, that could read the most bloodthirsty stories about pirates would shriek for fear when they saw one of them coming along the street. There was a difference in all the world. And you'll find that too here. So we don't make any pretenses. The armour of God is not mentioned in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4 or 5. It doesn't come until he says, now, finally, the last thing I've got to say to you. So we're putting it in its right place. And there's a need for discipline and understanding before we can begin to deal. Because, think of the foes we have. Daniel 10 has lifted the veil. Anyone, any power that could hold back a servant of God sent from heaven for 21 days until Michael came and rescued him is not one that we can rightly deal with. And do remember that the epistle of Jude says that when the archangel Michael dealt with Satan over the body of Moses, he didn't bring against him a raiding accusation. He said, the Lord rebuked him. So here it is. We're up against a mighty foe, friend. And one of his methods, or I've used the word, is found here in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 11, the wiles of the devil. That word is the word method. Now it doesn't mean to say that the most unmethodical people are the ones that are the finest Christians, because that, if that were so, I'd be about the beginning, or I'd be one of the top ones. Because I don't know what method I pursue except to get on with it. And the best way I work is in a most awful muddle, as long as nobody clears it up. Oh, I have to watch the Methodists when they're about. But I'm not speaking of the Methodists, because this word degenerated like so many words do, and it means systematic deception. You've already got the same expression in another form in chapter 4. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. The slight of men is that they are playing dice with the truth and the cunning craftiness is this method of deceit whereby they lie in wait to deceive. I've got a little extract from the second book of Maccabees which is not scripture but shows you the use of the word by the people. When the king had taken a taste of the manliness of the Jews he went about to take them by 
policy. Policy. That's this word. He couldn't do it by direct attack. So he did it by undermining policy. I don't know whether you saw in the newspaper, I think it was under the portrait of Moncton, who has now left his parliamentary position. And the comment on Moncton was, he wasn't a politician. He spoke what he believed to be true. That says something, doesn't it? Policy. Policy. It is expedient, said the high priest. It is expedient. Or expediency. So we must remember that we've got someone to outmatch us unless we've got a divine provision and protection. Now it says, when we put on this armour, we wrestle. I told you we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against principality. Wrestle. I don't know whether you have ever passed along the Thames embankment where the gardens open up, and if you do, there's a pair of gates, and on either side are two men standing in the attitude of wrestling. Greek statues, stripped naked as they must be. Our English word gymnasium comes from the Greek word gymnos, which means naked. Bare grain, the very word, naked. No wrestler in Paul's day ever went into a wrestling match with a helmet and a shield and a breastplate. Goodness me, they couldn't go into it now, could they? Well, are we criticising the apostle then and say he made a mistake? No. He has used the word armour so much before that by the time he gets here, all relationship to what you might call a military use of it has gone. Shall we make sure of that first? Romans, the 13th chapter. Romans, the 13th chapter, verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armour of light. So he is armour. Now what are we going to do with this armour? Oh, you say, fight! Well, you look in vain for any fight now. Let us walk honestly. As in the day. Not in rioting. And in drunkenness. Not in chambering. And wantonness. Not in strife. And envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. The next time he says put on, he doesn't say put on armour at all. He says put on Christ. And all that he stands for. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. There's not a single word there that means you're out on a military expedition. The only foe that you've got to recognise is yourself, number one. The apostles using armour in that sense. Let's look again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, <coughs> verses 7 and 8. Verse 6 says, Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. We were on the same subject again. Night and drunkenness. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us all of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and from helmet the hope of salvation. Well, there's no word here about fighting anybody. This is standing against the wiles of the devil all this encroachment of darkness and to do with the lusts of the flesh. Your flesh, not somebody else's. Then if you'll turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, another reference to armour, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not make war after the flesh. So he's dealing with the word war. So we'll see what fights on and who he's attacking. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the putting down of strongholds. Oh, yes, say now we're going to do it. Putting down strongholds. Casting down imaginations. Oh, then you see we're back again. It's within and not without. It's mental. And every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So you see, 
time you and I had become acquainted with the way in which Paul had used the word armour, we should never bother about the mixing up of the two figures wrestling in armour, because we know full well that the wrestling is a good figure when you know what the armour indicates that you're up against lusts of the flesh, powers of darkness, and all these evil things which are mostly within and not without. Now, what about this word wrestling? I've copied out from here some of the usages in the writers of ancient Greek. Socrates wrestles with bonds and poison. Plato wrestles with a tyrant's anger. Xenophon wrestles with prejudice, snares, treachery and machinations. And Diogenes wrestles with poverty, infamy, hunger and cold. Well, there's a good list there. You, can, you can't wrestle with any of them, not strictly, literally, except you do it in the mental way. So now we've got the, the ground clear. We wrestle. Now he says, first of all, in Thessalonians, a negative. And it's a good thing to know with whom you are not to fight, as well as with whom you are. Otherwise, it will be a distraction, won't it? There is a certain country not very far from where we are, where the inhabitants are supposed to be always spoiling for eruption. Uh, but uh, that may be all right for their temperament, but it's not to be ours. We want to know with whom we fight. And most surely we ought to know why we are fighting. If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who's going to prepare himself for battle? So, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Now that's a statement of scripture. You and I may know a good many people who are flesh and blood that are opponents, that are antagonistic, but so far as you're concerned, they're not the objects of this battle or this wrestling. You live as far as it's possible with them peaceably. You do your utmost. You suffer a good many things rather. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. But we do wrestle with principalities and powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickednesses, our version says, in high places. Margin says, in heavenly places. This is the last reference to the word heavenly places. The first is chapter 1, 3. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That's where our blessings are. Well now, what about this passage? Christ is the mighty victor. He has ascended far above all principality and power. He's gone into heaven itself and he's seated at the right hand of God. Are we to believe that up there in heaven's holiest place there's war going on and wrestling going on and these awful beings up there in the very presence of God still? Well, you say it says so. Well, that may not be. We cannot use the parenthesis in our language as the Greek can because we have no endings on our words. Now, we don't want to go too far into the grammatical side, but you see, if you know the auxiliaries, the verb to be and should and could and would and so, you can stick it on in the front of any verb and away you are. But in the Greek language, these words have endings and you can tell by looking at them whether they're singular or plural, or whether they're masculine or feminine, or whatnot, you see. So it doesn't matter so much where they come. In English, it does matter that it's put in its right place. But you can alter the place, if you like, because nobody miss it. There it is, waiting. So I'm going to ask you to turn to another passage first, as an illustration of this use. <coughs> this is the Epistle of Peter. Second Epistle of Peter. Chapter 1. Oh, I'm sorry, First of Peter. No, I'm wrong again, Second Peter. Second Peter. Before I read the verse, I'm going to ask you whether you believe that the second coming of Christ is a literal coming, or whether you believe what some people teach, that whenever a person is converted in a gospel meeting, that's the coming of Christ. Now, there are two views, see, and that's what I've heard. That, oh, he's not coming in actual person, but he comes in the heart. And they'll say, here's a verse that proves it. 2 Peter 1.19 
We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts. They are. The day star is going to arise in your hearts, and you're done, aren't you? But if you know this parenthesis that can come, a grammatical parenthesis, will you just imagine you put the little brackets, I'll, I'll give them again, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that ye take heed, brackets, in your hearts. When you close the brackets. That's what he's telling you. Take heed in your hearts. And he stops it to put in brackets. This reason why. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Until the day dawn and the day star arise. That's all. You're not altering any word. You're merely just observing this possibility of shifting the word out of its place at the end to give it emphasis. Now we come to Ephesians. The same thing as far as I understand this passage obtains here. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, neither do we wrestle in heavenly places. That's out. That's the beginning and end of the story. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, and we do not wrestle in heavenly places. But, we do wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness. This world, down here. Because remember, chapter 2 doesn't say that Satan is now the prince of heavenly places. He's the prince of the power of the air. The power of the air is limiting him. And we are putting him right up there again where he's no right now to go. He's gone. The book of the Revelation says that he's cast out of the heaven of that part to the earth, but not from where Christ sits at the right hand of God anymore. So, I hope that you realise there's a possibility that this doesn't say we're wrestling up there where Christ sits. We're wrestling down here. And we have no quarrel with flesh and blood. They'll have quarrel with you, of course, uh, but it takes two to bring it to an issue, and so you have to remember, although we're not under the Sermon on the Mount, the same spirit obtains, and that if they smite you on the one cheek, you turn the other also. Well, now we come to this question of wrestling not, and I want to go back to an Old Testament passage which so wonderfully illustrates the principle. I'd like you, if you will, this time to turn to the passage and see it together with me, Deuteronomy chapter 2. The children of Israel are now all ready to make their march into the land of promise. For 40 years they've been marking time in the wilderness, and now the Lord says it's about time you moved in. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spake unto me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. Oh, what days they were. And the Lord spake unto me, saying, Ye have compassed this mountain long enough, turn you northward. And command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. So go for them. Oh, no, no, no. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them. You see? We wrestle not with flesh and blood. They're not your legitimate foes. They'll be antagonistic to you. But I command you, meddle not with them. For I will not give you of their land. No, not so much as a footbreath. Because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. But what you must do is this. You shall buy meat of them for money that you may eat. You shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. But that's all. You pay for what you have and you'll find that they said they would guarantee to keep to the main road. They would not go into the possessions of these people. They were not going to meddle with them. I don't know how you feel about things. But on one occasion when I lived in the country, I had a visitor with a paper and he wanted me to put 
I name down to petition that the cinemas should be shut on Sunday. I said, friend, what's that got to do with me? I said, I am a pilgrim. I have no rights in this place. Why should I legislate for a poor person who doesn't believe the Lord what he's going to do on Sunday? I said, if you see some of these young people, they're living in such awful cramped conditions that if they're hanging about the street corners, they're in terrible temptation. And on top of that, the same power that's going to shut the cinema on Sunday is the power that opens it on Monday. What have I got to do with shutting or opening cinemas? If I... I'm not Lot going into Sodom. I'm going to be with Abraham outside. And the only man who could have saved Sodom was the man who never went in. For Abraham said, Wilt thou destroy if there are fifty, forty, thirty, twenty, ten? And the Lord said he wouldn't destroy it if there were only ten. And Lot inside next his righteous soul. He sat in the gate of the city. He was elected a town councillor. He did his utmost. But he lost his all. His daughters his wife, and everything. Meddle not with them. I said, look, if you'd like to come round the neighbourhood and have a look at all the notice boards outside the churches, how many of them got wish drives stuck on instead of a prayer meeting, I said, that may be a legitimate thing, I don't know. Of course, he turned on his heel and left me. Meddle not with them. Well, now we go on again in chapter 2. It says in verse 9, and the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle. So here again, you wrestle not with these, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given art unto the children of Lot for a possession. Now he slips something in. The Emims dwelt therein in time past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Emims, Anakim, Canaanites, the devil see. The Old Testament equivalent of the principalities and powers in Ephesians. The evil powers. They are spiritual, these were physical. And these people had got the Emims, the Anakims, these fallen ones, to keep in mind. Not battle with one another. Because you remember these people were sort of half-cousins. Esau was the, was the brother of Jacob and uh, Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Then he speaks about others. Verse 12. The Horims also dwelt in Seir before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them or inherited them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave, gave unto him, gave unto them. So he's a parallel. Each one of these are moving into a position which God has given, but they find it occupied in every case by the evil seed. And just as these did it, and these did it, so Israel did it. Now when you come to Israel, the Canaanites were possessing their land. And they were told, you must not meddle with these other people. The only one you're going to meddle with is that. So we'll get to that, shall we? Verse 24. Rise ye up and take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon, Behold, I have given unto thine hand Sion, the Amorite, king of Eshbon. Now, Sion was an Amorite, and the Amorites were the Canaanites, and these were representative of the evil sea. These are like the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. These are the legitimate foes. And our version says, begin to possess, contend with him in battle. That word contend is the same word as the word meddle. Meddle with him! So you see, as any amount of God's people have tangled themselves up and they're meddling with the wrong one. They're meddling with all the things down here that they can never put right. And they're failing to meddle with those that are the legitimate opponents. Well, there's a principle that runs through that. And then you will see that Israel had to take the same line with regard to going through this world. Verse 25. This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. And I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kedimoth unto Sihon king of Eshbon with words of peace. Look at that. Sihon was one of the evil seed. 
But he could have been spared, he would have been spared if he just let them go through. He said words of peace. Let me pass through thy land. That's all we're asking of the world. Let us pass on our pilgrimage. Don't clutter us up by loading us with all these problems which belong to your affair and not to mine. Oh, I know some people say, you're shirking your responsibility. I say, I'm seeking to shoulder my true responsibilities and not do things by halves. Let me pass through thy land. I will go along by the highway. I will neither turn unto the right hand nor to the left. Thou shalt sell me meat for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only I will pass through on my feet. You see, God himself knows that we, although we are blessed with all spiritual blessings, while we're in this world, we must at least, at least have something to eat and something to drink. He knows that. So it's no good a person turning around and saying, Whoa, well, even though you're a Christian, even though you take this high and mighty attitude, you're glad of the butcher and the baker. I said, I am. I'm limited by that and God has made that provision. I'm all right. But I do not force my rights. I don't go to law every time because somebody cheats me. I don't enjoy everything I might possibly enjoy. Rather, I say, no, no, let that go. I don't want to do that. I don't think I could do that without compromising the name of the law, you see? That attitude. Oh, let me go through, let me go on my pilgrim journey, and I'll walk on my feet all my... I don't know how some people will get on, because I read the other day, a lady said to her husband, oh, get out of the car, I want you to come and look at this. Oh, he didn't want to do. So she said, well, what are your two feet for? He said, well, I don't know, perhaps one's for the accelerator and one's for the brake. <laughs> well, I met people of Christian mentality like that. You wouldn't think they got any feet at all. So he said, well, walk. We'll walk through on our feet. But verse 30 says, Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeared this day. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land before thee. Begin to possess. When God begins, you begin. But until he begins, you wait. I have begun to give Sion and his land before thee. You begin to possess that thou mayest inherit his land. So he took all his cities. Strictly speaking, Sion need not have lost his land. That was the other side of Jordan. Just how that bears upon this particular passage, I'm not sure. I don't know. Of course, that's not the only thing I don't know, Fred, so I don't mind admitting. Now we come back to Ephesians 6. How are we going to be equipped to meet these spiritual foes? Well, no equipment that the world can provide us will be possible. It doesn't matter how learned we are in the estimation of the world. We can't beat this one. However wise we may be, we may have all the philosophy of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle in our finger ends. But there's one who knows all about that and a lot more that we've got to meet. The only possible way of meeting this foe is to put on the armour of God. And the armour of God has already been practically defined as put on Christ. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how can we do that? Well, we can only do that by putting on, as it were, mentally, taking by faith all that God has made his Son to be to us. And in that we'll stand. And without that we shall fall. We don't meet him in our own strength, and we certainly do not use the weapons which are carnal. We go back to the Old Testament for one or two illustrations together. David. And Goliath. Goliath stands for a spiritual foe. He was not the ordinary, everyday, flesh and blood foe, just the type. How did David meet him? Well, first of all, he had the counsel of the world. King Saul looked at the stripling David. He says, you, you, you can't, you, you're going out to meet this giant? Yes. Oh, well, we must pick you out. So they dressed up David in Saul's armour. Do you read that in the scriptures? Whenever I read that, I see a poster that was outside the theatre. And the man who took the character 
was the name that I possessed. His name was Welsh. And there he's standing, dressed up in armour, about two sizes, too big, and a sword sticking out above his head. He looked the biggest fright you could imagine. And young David, he didn't dare to say he wouldn't put it on, so he did. And I could imagine Saul looked at him and said, hmm, well, I can see that's no good. So he took it off again. Well, then he said to Saul, look, I don't know whether he said your majesty or what, but he said, look, I've already tackled a lion and a bear. Won't you let me use the instrument that I've been accustomed to under the power of God? Yes. So he went and he took five smooth stones out of a brook. And there's a reason why they were smooth. One is, of course, they were easier to throw, but more important, they weren't fashioned in any arsenal of man. They were just there. Just there. And he took those stones, and one of them was enough. There was a hand behind that stone that other people couldn't see. So he put on the armour of God. He wouldn't put on the armour of Saul. Well, in our case, we are given this armour. Would you notice the pieces of this armour? Verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. First thing I think we might notice is, there are six items in this armour. And there are some who have been rather surprised, because seven is the number which we associate with the things of God, if you've got a group, they say, why six? Well, there are six references to a mystery in Ephesians. Why not seven? Well, a mystery always means there's an enemy somewhere, and the armour always means there's an enemy somewhere. So it's an imperfect position. We don't need armour when there's no evil. You see, when we get to glory, armour will be a thing of the past, like so many other things. When glory is attained, there'll be no temple, no tabernacle, no priest, no sacrifice, no armour, no sword, no shield. There's simply be no need for it. So it belongs to the present imperfect position. And six is a good number. Now the first item in this armour is invisible. Your loins girt about with truth. And after that, you begin to put the metal plates on. It doesn't matter how much a person is loaded up with bulletproof or spearproof armour. If there's the slightest insincerity in himself, he's vulnerable. So this is a battle of truth and falsehood or lie. All do think of this, friends, how many, many times folks have held out for long and then they've capitulated. They said, oh, well, does it really matter whether I stand out so? And then you see, that little tinge of insincerity means of the cheek in their armour. You know, when the days, in the old days, when knights wore armour and the weapon was the bow and arrow, they didn't, they didn't shoot those bows and arrows indiscriminately, let them go anywhere. Those were marksmen. And a man who was dressed in armour was exposed to those arrows and they sorted him out. They fired at spots on his armour and they found a weak spot and he was done. The evil one will find a weak spot if it's there, don't you forget. That's one thing. So first of all, your loins gird about with truth. To, to gird about the loins is a figure of speech in the Old Testament for getting ready to lay aside every weight. Our version in English figures is to buckle too. Buckle to. Gird your loins. It even says gird up the loins of your mind because it becomes your figure. Readiness. But truth. The last item in the armour is the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and thy word is truth. So the armour begins and it ends with truth. Now the only weapon that God has given us is the sword of the spirit. No other. No other. I do remember some folks in the days gone by used to speak about prayer as a weapon. Prayer warfare. Prayer warfare. That was merely psychology. You were going to 
jam Satan. You're going to keep on praying and stop. Prayer is addressed to the Lord. Prayer is through Christ to God. You can't use it as a sort of invisible ray to stop powers getting at you. When our Saviour was here upon earth, when he met the devil, he met him just as you and I can. He could have used other ways. He could have done all sorts of things that were legitimate and right, but he didn't. Just like a poor, everyday person like ourselves, when he was met by the devil in the wilderness, all that he did was to say, it is written. And when the devil came back to him, it is written. And when he came again, it is written, and it finished him. So you see, if this is the weapon that we're to use, we ought to know that it's trustworthy, and we ought to have some ability to handle it. Well, that's what we're doing here tonight, friends. Every time we have a Bible study, we're becoming acquainted with the book. We're becoming acquainted with the weapon that God has given us. And the more we test it, the more we become confident that it's a fine, as I think Bunyan puts it, a fine Jerusalem blade. I don't think Bunyan would be very satisfied with the sword of the spirit that comes out of the arsenal of the higher critic. Because if you examine it, this, the handle would go wobbling up and down. You see, the book of Genesis or the five books of Moses didn't really fit, so whatever you do, tie it up with a bit of string before you go out, because you might not let the lot fly. And then when you went and hit something, the point went over like that. It wasn't true steel. Oh dear, oh dear. Has God given us a weapon like that? He might as well give us a corkscrew. No, no. My Saviour has shown you that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the effective weapon to use. The rest is protected. I notice the head is protected, the breast is protected, the feet are protected, but there's nothing for the back. It may be useful to remember that when you turn back, you're not protected. Of course, that may be, or not, I don't know. The Apostle, when he wrote these words, could have easily looked at a man dressed in armour, the Roman soldier. But on the other hand, he who knew the Old Testament Scriptures could borrow practically every one of these from the Old Prophets. When he speaks about the breastplate and the armour and the helmet, it's all found embedded in Old Testament Scripture. So we have a breastplate of righteousness. And we have our feet shod. It's a very strange word, this preparation of the gospel of peace. It seems to be that although we're dressed in armour, we've got to be ready for that which has to do with peace. And you know, it's a strange thing too, from one point of view, to read Romans 16. Now the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Because, you see, he's not the God of vindictiveness. This is a war of righteousness and truth. He's the God of peace all the time, and it's because he's the God of peace that sometimes war is inevitable. And he says, above all, now that may mean, whatever else you forget, don't forget this, above all. But it may mean, and overall, because you know there was a huge shield as well as a small one used, and the huge shield the word used for a shield is almost the Greek word for a door. Something that completely covers you. And in the British Museum you can see the Assyrian soldiers stooping down, kneeling, with a shield that goes up and goes right over their head like that. And this shield has got a guarantee on it. If you'd like to read on the shield that God has given us, it's guaranteed to quench all the incendiaries that the evil one may drop on you. The fiery darts of the wicked. Guaranteed. There was one of these ladies who were connected with this prayer warfare. Every time I met her, she was telling me another experience she'd had, how the devil had been at her again. I said, he doesn't give you much room down here. I said, why don't you let him alone a bit? I said, you know, the more you tell me this, you're more, the more you're telling me every day that you're letting down your shield. Don't think I'm going to say to you, oh, you must be a spiritual person for him to be getting at you. I said, first of all, in Christ, you're raised far above him. So you've got to step out of your position when we get at you at all. And then, you've got a shield that's guaranteed against him. And you come and tell me every day, oh, he was at me again on Wednesday. 
Well, after that, are they telling me that you can't use the shield that God has given you? So she didn't think much of me. Wherewith we shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And the helmet of salvation covers your head. So we are covered. Head to foot. Cap up in. Complete armour. Panoply. Pan. All. Complete. Well. Complete armour with this one great weapon. Well then I think you can see that we, we have indeed a wonderful exhortation at the end of this epistle. This is what God has provided. He has warned us there's an evil day. Before we enter into our glorious possessions, we may have to stand. We may have to withstand. We may have to meet. I don't know. I don't want to draw a lurid picture. I only know that I'm positive that God would not give us all this information about warfare and about the antagonistic powers and about the armour we have if it was never going to be called upon to be used. So don't let's be afraid. Don't let's be intimidated. But rather, let us say, look at the mighty power that's at our disposal. The power that raised Christ from the dead. That's ours. And we simply draw upon it and use it. And we shall be able to stand. But you do notice the emphasis upon standing. Doesn't say march. Doesn't say run a campaign. It says, first of all, you stand, and when it's all over, you withstand. Stand, therefore. So whatever you do, don't let somebody enlist you for some campaign that marches you off somewhere. Rather stand where God has placed you and leave the conduct of the campaign to him. Well, now that means to say that with our next meeting, we shall bring the studies that we are recording in the epistle to the Ephesians to a close. That doesn't mean to say we know all about it or that we shall never return to it. But I do ask you, not merely to let these meetings go from your mind, but do remember that others are going to share in distant parts of the world through this new method of the recording tape and pray that they also may enter into some of the blessings that I do honestly trust we ourselves have received during this period. So next time we meet together, we hope to bring this study to a conclusion, and then I'll announce at that meeting what the subject is we hope to take up for our future meditation.